Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Why do we pray? God already knows what we need before we ask. Why do we need to tell him about it? God knows the deepest needs of our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Why do we need to articulate those things to him? Well, there are at least three reasons. One is because he tells us to. And that often is the simplest but the best reason for just about everything, to do what he tells us to do. We see it in the life of Jesus. No one is closer to the Father than the Son, and yet the, Father, the Son's life is immersed in prayer. He draws aside from the others to have time even before first light, to be with the Father in the times of deepest need. Father and Son know each other's heart, know each other's will, and yet, yet the Son agonizes in the garden with the Father. Because he tells us to pray, we pray. But secondly, like any relationship, surely it's essential to the relationship that there be communication. I often come back to something that I'll touch again as I go along. Um, Far too much of our praying is of the order of us talking to God, giving him our requests, the idea that Prayer is really about telling God what we need and waiting to see if he will do what we want. And I've raised that question on different occasions of how do we know if a prayer is answered? And if we really get down to it, so often what we've got in mind is, does he do what we tell him to do? But surely a relationship and the communication in the relationship is not just us talking in one direction, but is the the talking together, the listening to one another, being together and often that communication without words. And prayer properly is all of that and more. We need that to build up the relationship. And sometimes, you know, husbands and wives are married for many years and get to know each other. Sometimes even with good friends, you know each other intimately. You can be pretty sure you know what the other person is thinking about something that comes up. And yet, it's a dangerous thing to assume that often, especially in a marriage where you stop paying attention to the other person. I mean, why do I have to ask him? Because I already know what he's going to say. Hmm, well, people grow and circumstances change. Um, I already know what she wants, so I don't need to ask. She knows I love her so I don't have to say it anymore. Well, ask the wives among us how that one goes over over time. You don't always have to say things in words, but if there aren't the ways in which that's communicated, it really undermines the relationship. People feel very much cut off. We build the relationship where when dealing with God, we're not dealing with some being up there in the sky somewhere, we're dealing with our Lord, the one who has created us, who loves us, who redeems us, but also who comes to be with us, who gives us his life. The relationship really matters. But the third thing that goes with all of this is that it's in prayer that we tap into the promises and 
power that God has for us in order that we might live the lives that he's called us to live, that he's created us for. I've come across this wonderful quote, um, but I'm quoting myself. When I say that in the spiritual realm, too many of us spend way too much time trying to use power tools manually, but they don't work nearly so well without being plugged in and switched on. There are some tools that even if they've got power to them, if you haven't got them plugged in, you can still use them. Maybe not even for the purpose they're, they're made for. I was thinking earlier today about if you're driving a car, the older ones among us have lots of memories of driving manual steering. And maybe we remember the first time that we got power steering and just how amazing it was. If you're driving manual steering, it's quite manageable. When you've got power steering and the power goes out and you start trying to manage, especially a bigger vehicle, you really notice it. And it's a challenge. Well, likewise with the things that God has given us, that so often we're trying to do the things that need to be done without properly plugging in, without drawing on the resources, on the power that the Lord gives. Okay, but how do we do that? It strikes me that Jesus, in those words today, gets us focused in that when he speaks about asking, seeking, and knocking. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We could treat those as three separate things, but I think they're kind of progressive. I think they go together as parts of the whole. The asking is what we tend to do a lot of. We throw things before God. But even in the asking, there ought to be that setting out of, well, if you're going to do a job, because I got started with tools, if you're going to do the job, first you check out what it is that needs to be done. If you're a contractor and you're working with a client, well, you ask what it is that the client wants done, but then when you get started, you talk about how you would do that, how you would address that. The whole business of looking at what's required, what it is that needs to happen. And frankly, if we're actually talking with God, if we're not just throwing our requests at him, he has some say in that one. You know, sometimes we're really frustrated that he doesn't seem to answer our prayers, but sometimes we're praying very much in odd directions from what he really wants to open up to us. Hand in hand with the asking, the setting things before him. And I mean, sometimes that is the opening of our hearts. Even if we really think this might not be what he wants, we still tell him what's going on. We still tell him the agonies that are there. We still tell him what it is we think he needs to do. But then we've got the opportunity for that conversation, for the the seeking further, what is it that needs to happen here? How does it need to happen? How do we map out that next step? What tools actually need to be in place? You know, sometimes a prayer is simple and straightforward, what we offer to him. Sometimes Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. 
and there are a little, a little, so a little more work that's got to be done, a little more preparatory work. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare the situation. Some of you know that sometimes a physical healing is just a physical thing, but sometimes there are deeper spiritual things going on that need to be worked on, that need to be healed in order for the physical to follow. Sometimes those deeper things addressed, actually the physical just happens, even if you're not praying about it specifically. But that whole business of of seeking with him, of letting him shape the prayers. We've got that wonderful story that I, I debated whether I should spend all my time with it instead today with Abraham and the Lord. Um, that wider context, it's a wonderful, mysterious tale all the way through. But I can never read those words of Abraham but without thinking about the old Jewish man standing there with the Lord and doing his haggling, doing his negotiation, as it were. Um, you know, the Lord has made his proposal and Abraham has to stop in and does his intercession. But it's the back and forth with the Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, you're not, you're not going to do that. That's not like you, Lord. You don't do that sort of thing. I mean, you're going to kill, you're going to take away the righteous with, with the wicked. Lord, surely you would not do such a thing. And then we get started on the, um, Lord, Lord, if there were, if there were 50, 50 righteous, you would not destroy all of it for 50 righteous? And the response, no, I wouldn't. Um, now, forgive me, Lord, but, you know, you wouldn't. I mean, for five, what, what are five? What are five little ones? Uh, um, 45, 45, if there were only 45. And yet, no, I wouldn't destroy it for 45. And then you've got just this wonderful back and forth as he works his way down bit by bit until that last, oh, Lord, you know, what am I? What am I? Dust, ashes. Um, Who am I to ask God of these things? Who am I to dare? But, um, Lord, just one more time, one more time. What if there were only 10? Now, the interesting thing about that whole process as he works the way down is when he starts, you might see the capricious deity who is angry with his people and wishes just to destroy them, clean them away. But as he moves down, Abraham highlights the fact that this is the righteous God. He has a just cause. The stench of this place, of the cities of the plain, is overwhelming. God is going to go and check it out a little bit more thoroughly, but he's not just arbitrarily destroying the whole mess because it is a mess. If there were ten righteous, I have no idea how many there were in Sodom at that point. What I do know is if you start to count things up, Lot, go back to Genesis 13, even when he went there in the first place, it was already identified as a wicked place. He's been in that place now for years. We don't know how many, but he's married, he's raised daughters to the point where they're betrothed. They have their, um, those are called sons-in-law, but they're not fully married yet. But he's been there for a good number of years, and the influence is on him too. But if Lot is a righteous man, if his family could be called righteous, we've got them and the daughters 
were the sons-in-law righteous too? If they might have qualified, we could get up to six there, and you can't find four more in the whole place. And even two of those stayed behind. But Abraham has worked this one through with God. He knows he's done his part. He's articulated his desires before God. What a wonderful guy, Abraham, who would so intercede for them. But he comes to see God's heart for Sodom and knows the way that it has to go. To ask and to seek and then to knock. The knock is that last part in things, but it's actually the movement forward, taking the steps that are necessary. And sometimes we seem to miss that one, that we don't do all that needs to be done. Um, I was thinking of the parallel that's here. It's also about prayer, but when we come to confession, you know, in confession, there's a need for those same kinds of steps. Uh, Why do we need to confess our sins? God knows what we've done. He's already dealt with it all on the cross. He's already forgiven us before we come to him. We certainly need it. We need to do the asking. We need to prepare. We need to lay out what the need is. We need to face all of that before him. We need to come into that seeking period where we work through what's there. I mean, we do that somewhat ourselves if we've got... A good confessor, we, we work through some of the direction on that and highlight the things that really need to be looked at. But at the end of all of that, we've made our confession. It's been set before the priest. But there's still one more step, and it's the, the penance that comes at the end. And the penance, I would remind people again, is not how you earn God's forgiveness. It's not a word about climbing up to heaven and winning it for yourself, conquering the dragon and coming down with the prize. It's really about stepping forward and receiving from the Lord. It's the knocking on that door, and he opens because he wants to open. Which is the other part of all of this. You know, the persistence in prayer, the willingness to take those steps, It's not about badgering God. And in some ways, the story that we've got there today potentially plays into um, some of the bad thinking. You know, is Jesus saying that the friend who won't help his friend because he's a friend, yet if, if he keeps after him, will eventually give in? Luke 18, there's the story of the dishonest judge who doesn't care about righteousness, doesn't care about the widow who comes to him in her need, but because she keeps bothering him, eventually he'll give her what she wants because she's a pain in the backside. Um, Is that what God is telling us we ought to do? If we just keep bugging him enough, he'll give in to our demands. I think in both cases, Jesus is pretty clear that God is nothing like those. He's nothing like the dishonest judge. He's nothing like the friend who has to be badgered. He desires to give good gifts to his children. Our persistence in prayer is not about getting him to do something he doesn't want to do. But sometimes it's not overcoming the resistance in him. Sometimes it's the resistance in us. It's what it takes to open up the channels within us 
to get ourselves properly plugged in, that he can do what he wants to do, that he will do the things that he wouldn't do any other way. Always a little funny to talk about what God can do. You know, with God, all things are possible. The one thing that he can't do, though, is to contravene his own nature. He won't do what is not his way to do. And so there's always something about the way that he works with us, that he looks for us to come to that place to have our hearts formed by him, that he might do the things that he wants to do in and through us that we need to be ready for. Many years ago, I remember a friend, a parishioner in Anglican days, who at one point when he was frustrated with how his life was going, said to me, well, I, you know, I tried all these things. I've tried this way of prayer. I've tried to do the right thing all the time, and it never works out. And I had to say to him, um, Bill, you haven't tried. You do this for a week. You, you, you stick with it for a little while. But you don't really wrestle with God. You don't persist in prayer. You're not an Abraham who is going through the steps and, and really opening your heart before God. How often do we really do the asking, seeking, and knocking? How often do we persist in that prayer? How often do we remember as we pray that we're not trying to overcome the reluctance of God, but that he really earnestly desires to give us the things that are best for us? That he really desires to give us his Holy Spirit to live the lives that we're made for? that as we continue in that prayer, we learn to listen, to seek his heart, to let his heart become our own, that he might shape us, that he might work in and through us. His desire is that his kingdom would indeed come in fulfillment of that prayer he invites us to pray. In Colossians, we're reminded that we're not our own that we were bought at a price, that we belong to the Lord, that our life is in Him. As we enter into the real heart of prayer, we come to enter into that life in Him. To pray because He's told us to. To pray because it's what the relationship is all about. To pray that we might plug into that life that He has for us, that we might live as true sons and daughters, giving glory to God that his kingdom may come, his will may be done in and through us on earth, even as it is in heaven. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened.